Welcome to episode four of the Welding Codex. In this episode, Pete and I pick up where we left off in clause three of AWS D1.1 Structural Welding Code. This is the clause that lays out how an individual would write a pre-qualified welding procedure. Right now, we're going to dive into where our conversation was, and we were discussing pre-qualified weld joints and their effect pre-qualified welding procedure specifications, pre-qualified WPSs. This podcast is for those who want to learn more about the technical side of welding. We're going to talk philosophy of welding, welding codes, welding defects, and topics like that. My name is Gary Pace. I'm a welding engineer. And the other two hosts of this program are Peter Kinney and Joel Christie. Both are Ohio State welding engineers. All right. What do you got on weld joints, Pete? Well, they're they're not the kind of joints that other people are thinking they might be. We're not talking Colorado, Washington, Nevada, anywhere where it's gone full wreck. That's right. <laughs> so to do a pre-qualified weld joint, when they're talking about joints, if you look at AWS D1.1, is very limited in regards to the welding joints that you can use when you're writing a pre-qualified weld procedure. There's a whole bunch of pictures that tell you what kind of weld joint you can use with any particular welding process. So there's pages and pages of them. So when you're writing a pre-qualified weld procedure, a lot of times you might just want to use one specific weld joint and call it good, as opposed to using 15 different ones. Where are you at with the weld joints, Pete? Yeah, you got a you got different kind of joints, and I think we can kind of break them down into a couple simple ones. We got CJP, which is an acronym we've used a lot, and I'm, I think we've defined it in our earlier uh, session. But complete joint penetration, we have those. We have partial joint penetration, which basically you have a one inch thick plate, but you're only welding let's say half of it or a quarter of it, or hey, it might only be like an eighth inch uh, weld all the way around just so water doesn't get inside. Those are, uh, and then fillets are the the main kind of joints uh, that we have. But going back to our CJPs, for pre-qualified, you have to have it either backing using steel or it has to be back gouged. That's the only way you can have a full pen weld under pre-qualified D11. And by back gouging, we mean that you weld it from one side and then you come in from the other side, the root side of that weld, and you chew out a whole bunch of weld metal or base metal and weld metal till you get it to sound metal and then you weld it out from that side. So you're welding the joint out from both sides. So when you're back gouging, you're digging in there from the non-welded side and taking out material till you get down to clean metal and then you weld it up from that side. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about back gouging. You can't Correct. just put in a, a 6010 root like you would on pipe and then fill it out with 7018. You got to go in and clean that other side out. So that's what we're talking about. You cannot have a weld joint that has been welded from one side with the pre-qualified clause and expect it to fly. It's prohibited. Correct. And for... Uh... The CJP and PJP, there are uh, figures that are like, well, do I just, how do I come up with a weld joint? Uh, there's, where do I get these figures from? Do I just make them up? 
Gary, where do we get these joints from? I'm on 2015, so I'm in figure 3.2, which I guess would be figure 5.2. But there, there is, I don't know how many of these, just numerous joints and configurations that and there's little tables that tell you which weld procedures or weld processes you can will use with those weld joints. I'm looking at 3.2 3 in 2015, and it's pre-qualified PJP groove weld joints. So you go in there and you look and find your configuration. What you're doing falls into one of those configurations. That's the, the weld joint you use. And they're all numbered. So they have joint designations like BP7, BP7GF. BP7S. It tells you which one. It varies by process. In these groove diagrams, they'll give you the thicknesses, groove preparation tolerances, base metal thicknesses that you can use them on, welding positions that are allowed. Obviously, some of these are for submerged arc welding, so they're only flat, right? You can't do it in the uphill position or the overhead. Miss anything there, Pete? All right. So the 2020, it's figures 5.1 and 5.5.2. And if we were, as you said, like a joint designation, so like let's say if we just go on the first one, which this is a a full pen weld, it's called a BL1A. We have one for stick welding here or SMAW. You'll notice that in the drawing, we have have two base metals. We have a T1 and a T2. And basically, uh, if we're we're looking at when it says T1 max, uh, T2 would, would, would be the same. It gives us a root opening where it says R is is equal to T1. So hey, we could have a root opening of a, let's say let's say this material is quarter inch. So we can have a quarter inch root opening. And then we have these these tolerances on here, Gary, detailed and as fit up. Can you walk us through? Uh, oh, what, now you're gonna going to make me work. Let's see how you are. Okay, so not having swam in this pool in a while. Okay, so you have the as detailed tolerance so for which one were you looking at pete what, what's the number uh that's you... a a bl1a complete joint penetration that's yeah it's complete joint penetration this is uh where it's basically a square groove weld and you have it is the simplest and easiest way uh to weld two let's say uh thin plates okay. together okay here we are so if we're going shielded metal arc bl1a the base metal thickness, we can go thickness. It can be a quarter inch maximum is the thickness for that one, for BL1A. So we're going to get our root opening. So the largest root opening we can have, because we're doing this one with backing, can have is the thickness of the material. So that's T1. So then we're going to go to the as detailed thickness for the tolerances, and it gives us plus 16th minus 0. So the detailer can detail this out, and he can have the any of the tolerances. He can add a 16th, but he can't subtract anything. So for the root opening, he can't. He could add a 16th, but he can't make it any tighter. Okay. And then the as fit up, because once we get it out into the field, as fit up, you can add a quarter and subtract a 16th. So it could. All right, so what you're telling you me, could also have it plus a quarter. You could have it a little bigger. So you're saying if uh, if I accidentally cut my plate a little short, I could kind of split my difference, and I could make it where I have a root opening as a if I had a quarter inch plate, quarter inch root opening. Now, if I cut my plate five sixteenths too short, 
could I increase my root opening by five sixteenths or could I only increase it by a quarter if the as detailed plus a sixteenth? Do I get to add them together? Okay, so you've cut it five sixteenths bigger. Short. Yeah. So, so, but can I make that root opening a quarter plus five sixteenths? No, you cannot because the detailer has already chewed up your sixteenth, correct? No. Yeah, this this is one of those tricky things in the code. You can add those together. You could add that sixteenth to make it five sixteenths, and then because we screwed up and we cut our plate a little short, you're allowed to add that extra quarter in. All right. So they've written the code because most of this stuff isn't aerospace level criticality as far as dimensions. So they give you a little slop here in how they've written the code. What were you going to say, Pete, before I walked all over you? Sorry uh, about that. No, no problem. Uh, it was like, yo, that's uh, it's a, one of those tricky little things that unless you really read through all this. Now, maybe here uh, it, it's nice. They've added uh, where you can say C5411 and 5418. That might walk us through exactly what that uh, our allowance is. But unless you really dive into the code, read through it. You, you would you may not pick up on those nuances of of what that is, uh, but you could uh, you could get a little more tolerance out of something that way by by adding those together or if it's in the case of uh, I don't think any of them are subtract the the detailer can always make it easier but you don't want to be making it harder for the welder for the craft to do their job. There we've got weld joints. So you've got to cover base materials. We haven't touched on filler materials yet, have we? Uh, no, no, we haven't. All right, let's go to welding processes. I don't know if it's it's a, it's in a different place. It is basically the same. The 2020, it's five, uh, section 55 or clause 55, and the same processes are, are pre-qualified. SMAW, uh, SAW, GBW, except short circuit and flux core uh, WPSs. Those are all pre-qualified. So why can't we use gas metal arc short circuiting, Pete? What is wrong with that process? Why is that the bastard stepchild of the welding? So that is a great process. I can say I have put in miles of pipelines in thousands of feet of water with short circuit welding process for the route. However, in an uncontrolled way, you can get a lot of lack of fusion real easily. That is the big problem with it. It lends itself. It was originally made for thin sheet metal uh, where it has enough heat input to make the weld. However, once you start applying it to thicker materials, unless you are apply it in a very controlled manner, you have a very good chance of getting lack of fusion along your weld. That is why it is the redheaded stepchild of the gas metal arc or big welding world and people will argue all the time with me why what they think is spray transfer but you walk up to it and it sounds like bacon frying which is the cadillac symbol of or telltale symbol of uh short circuit a couple of things with short circuiting number one if they're using you can't get spray if you've just got it, it depends on voltage, amperage, and the gas you're using. So if you're using a 7525, 75% argon, 25% carbon dioxide, you can't get spray. 
you cannot get a spray transfer mode. You could get globular, but you can't get spray. Anything under, generally I'll kick back a welding procedure, anything under about 20, 21 volts with let's say an 045 diameter hardwire, you're running in the short circuiting zone. And you go into a shop and you'll hear a guy running and it's like, nah, you're, you're supposed to be running with spray. Why are you running with that? And then, well, how did you know? It's like, well, I can hear it. Pretend I've been playing this game for the better part of three decades. So it gets back to the fusion. And if you've been around short circuiting on thick sections, let's say you're in a cold environment, those welds will crack and it'll it'll shear off just right along the the edge of the the weld joint thoughts no i completely agree uh it is it is definitely a uh where where you can run into when you do a bend all of a sudden you're like wow this has a perfect little line right along it because you had a lack of fusion and as you're saying gas gas makes you could never get spray maybe globular out of c25 the Europeans use a lot of, I believe it is C18, and that is somewhere around, I think it's 1820 is the minimum or the maximum amount of CO2 you could have and still uh, reach spray. But you're right. If what you see voltage, low voltages, low amps, and that kind of gas, you're, you're not going to have it. So, like, let's say just for uh, example, C20 – with 035, you're looking at probably somewhere around 195, 200 amps to be in spray. 045 goes up even more. That's about like 255, 260 with that. Now, if you were to, if you increase your amount of argon, you decrease your your uh, transition current. Like let's say we go uh, for uh, 92.8. Argon CO2, you're probably looking at for like 175 amps for 035. So basically what we're talking about here, kind of breaking it down, is at, at a certain point you've got a, enough current in there where it's running through that wire. And it just there's enough current electricity going through that wire where it just shatters the filler metal and it just turns it into little droplets. And it's like a little shower of weld metal going into that weld joint and it is freaking hot whereas i would liken gas metal arc welding short circuit it's more like using a a glue gun a hot glue gun or something the wire actually goes down touches melts breaks off goes down touches melts breaks off whereas if you're in the spray if you're using the right gas and a high enough current density it's just going to shatter that filler metal into little droplets and it sprays and it makes this humming sound or a buzzing sound. You have to understand a lot of welding isn't just visual. It's understanding the sounds too. I, but, I would agree. It's understanding the sounds. And if you can't hear it for whatever reason, look for spatter. If you don't really see spatter, you're probably in spray. Globular leaves a lot of spatter. Short circuit leaves a lot of spatter. But Spray transfer hardly leaves any at all. So those are the processes that are approved. There's other code-approved processes, electro-slag, electro-gas, gas tungsten arc welding, and gas metal arc welding, short-circuiting. You can use these with the code, but you have to qualify them. They're not pre-qualified. So you got to go and do bends and tensils and whatever code-required testing 
the code requires as far as testing for that process. So if you're using one of those um, processes, you're done here. Turn the page, go to the next chapter. Done. Exactly. The the other thing I want to throw out and the just so folks know about it. Uh, let's say I got an old Lincoln 200. Great welding machine. We stick weld around the world with that. The only problem with that is that is a constant current machine. I can't just go throw a suitcase on it and go flux core welding. For GMAW or MIG and flux core, you, the power supply has to be a constant voltage power supply. That is because those processes work much better as constant voltage or CV versus a constant current or CC. Like I said, this really only applies with either older machines or machines that were made strictly for, hey, uh, this is a SMAW or stick welding uh, type machine. Doesn't come up very often. Just so uh, if you think you're going to grab your old uh, Lincoln Pipeliner that puts down a fantastic bead and everything with 6010 or 7018 and uses it for flux coring, I'm not qualified under the code. That's uh, one caveat that while it doesn't come, like I said, come up very often, it is applicable. Okay, we've covered welding processes, filler metals and shielding gases. In the old code, it was base metal and slash filler metal combinations. There was a table where that was covered. Um, Correct. So that table still exists. So they have matching and then undermatching uh, relationship. Uh, that's that's how they split it up the same way it was the previous code. Basically, all they've done is renamed it uh, and renamed the numbering. Other than that, the only changes they I, I will say they have, Gary, is they've put it here to try to combat the whole uh, short circuit is they're linking a lot of the shielding gases back to the filler metal specification. So it's basically telling you you can't use carbon dioxide with gas metal arc welding, 100% carbon dioxide. Exactly. They're, they're, they're fighting that whole uh, and trying to, to prevent that from, uh, from occurring. So then you've got, here's out of the 2015, only base metals and filler metals listed in table 3.1 and 3.2 may be used in pre-qualified WPSs. For the qualification of listed base metals and filler metals, and for base metal and filler metals not listed, it's going to kick you to another table. So let's say you have a go ahead, Pete. No, I say no. You're you're exactly right. That's that's the same way this this is. It's just changing a lot of it. Is going to be changing it to like table five four. It's just it's basically only as is, is a revision of the uh, clause number. So it basically, if you go to that table. It tells you, okay, I can use E6010, I can use 7015. It gives me the electrodes that I can use, and it, it breaks it down into, you know, submerged arc or whatever. If you're filler metal, let's say you've got some super-duper European filler metal that your client wants you to use, and that's the end of the story. Well, if it's not listed here and it supplier hasn't qualified it as a specific AWS specification, you can't use that material. You go to clause four, you're done here and pre-qualified. Some Chinese welding material, it's just done. Go to clause four, qualify it, move on. Do your your bends, your tensils, and go from there. Correct. While it will not affect very many folks, uh, but like weathering steel, if it's going to be exposed uh, without uh, coating of any kind, you have to select uh, the correct kind of electrode that has the same kind of characteristics and that would push you to table 
In the 2021, it's 5.6. In the 2015, it's going to be three point something. But that's just uh, one of those other kind of little caveat get you things where I've seen uh, it was on a bridge job. It was a weathering steel bridge job, and they welded it with non-weathering electrode, and they had to paint it. Uh, that was a costly mistake to go from a uncoated bare bridge to a painted three coat system. So that's a even though this isn't this is not D15, but it was it's the same kind of mistake though. If you're ever dealing with weathering steel, find out if it's going to be painted or if it's going to be left bare for its own patina to develop before you go like, well, that's a a588 or a uh, a709 uh, grade 50w uh those, those are all group twos i can weld them with this 7018 hammer down well not for that weathering steel you could you'd have to go to uh like an 8018 c3 for a, a stick rod example but like i said i've that could be a costly mistake for someone okay here's one that trips people up and i don't know what it's numbered in 2020 Engineer's approval for auxiliary attachments. This is, I've, I've seen people play with this one. This is where when you, okay, engineer's approval for auxiliary attachments. Unlisted materials for auxiliary attachments, which fall within the chemical composition range of a steel listed in table in the table, may be used in a pre-qualified WPS when approved by the engineer. An auxiliary attachment to me is a non-load-bearing clip or ancillary item in the structure and if you let's say it's you're putting on something that came from upper volta or serbia or china or whatever and the part was made with their steel and you look through the chemistry for that steel and it's like ah this stuff's close enough it matches up with a36 let's say it's a german steel it matches up with a36 you write a little piece of paper. Hey, I did the comparison. I've done this a few times when I was at the Hanford nuclear site. I'd go through there, find that steel, find a comparable American steel, do a comparison, say the stuff kind of is similar to this material. I'd write a little piece of paper, sign it, send it to the engineer. Life's good. Thoughts, Pete? No, I think you're, you're on track. Where I have seen this mainly used to write is like a on welding a electrical boxes to structural framing that is where i i've rented this the most where it's like it's i don't know it's some kind of little box you buy them from the supply house there are a whole bunch of them we have a thousand of them that have to get welded on it's like a little let's say a 16th inch fillet and it's like do we really need to qualify it's just to hold for whatever reason they want to hold it on and the engineer says that's fine we don't need to go through a full qualification Riggable role for holding on an electrical switch box or something like that's the place I've seen it mainly used because for what they're saying is it's auxiliary. It's not really uh, like load bearing or structural. It has to just kind of hold itself up. It has to basically glue itself on without falling off. That's uh, the gist of what I found that. But, yeah, that's up in the basement of one that we covered uh, a little bit ago. But you're right. That's a very good point, Gary. I'm glad you remembered that. Yeah, and I'm kind of operating off a little different script here, so I'm kind of hitting some stuff. Preheat and interpass temperature requirements, how deep you going to go into that? Well, all right. So minimum preheat and interpass temperature. In 
in the 2020 version is table 5.8. Uh, I don't remember what it is in 2015, but it basically lists out the materials by group for their minimum preheat based on thickness there that they're pretty self-explanatory. So the way uh, 5.8 or the previous version, uh, which is going to be 3.4 from memory, it's both of the tables are broken into an A, which is the, the distinction with A. It has a handful of materials listed, and it's SMAW with other than low hydrogen electrodes. That's your 60 tens right there. Right. So you've got A part of the table, and it gives you a preheat temperature. And then Correct. you've got, if you're using a low hydrogen electrode, then it's got a little bit lower preheat temperature. But you'll notice Correct. as you go, if you're, you know, welding thick material, okay, if, if you're over two and a half inches thick, you're at 300 degrees with non-low hydrogen material, and then you're like at 225 with the low hydrogen material. You still exactly. got You're still going to be cooking that thing. You're, you're you just, still going to be cooking it. But uh, where where it affects people the most and where they make a mistake at is either they look at table A while they're using filler metals for material B, or that would be a, that would go into B. So you're spending money to heat stuff up when you may not need to, because on for three quarter and less the tables are the same. It's 32 degrees or higher. But once you get over three quarters of an inch, if you're using 60 tens, it goes to 150 degrees. While in the other, with a low hydrogen 7018, you're at 50. That is where, and especially in the structural world, that's kind of the thicknesses a lot of times you play in. That's where people either be spending money where they don't need to be, or they're not doing what they need to be. But uh, as as we talked about in the other ones, as the materials become stronger, your preheats will increase. So... Uh, you got your A, as we already said, we have a B. B's a long table for that portion. And then we go to C. And C are your higher strength materials. They start going ratcheting up in temperature quickly. D, D is a little different one. What is it? Li- it limits you to an H8 uh, electrode, which is 8 milligrams of hydrogen per 100. You'll see... Commonly, you'll see a lot of this, most, uh, well, a lot of your flux core wires and your stick rods will all be an H8. Your your solid wires will definitely be uh, higher than this. But here, this one's a little different. It's only 32 degrees for D. E is also uh, very similar uh, as well. They only have two temperature combinations. I have never actually dealt with any of these materials here. So I've never, I haven't had a deal with them. Have you, Gary? No, I've never swam that deep in the pool. Like I say, most of the stuff I've dealt with was A or B. That's, uh, that's right. I, I have not dealt with, but I mean, these materials can't be uh, very. I mean, if you could have over one inch and 120 degrees as your minimum, either that material is not available in very thick sections, or it is a super weldable, friendly material. Now, here, here's a question, Gary. What is the difference between uh, interpass? Because I have minimum preheat and interpass. What's the difference between those two? Aren't they the same? Minimum preheat is the temperature that you have to reach when you start to weld your first weld. And then 
an inner pass temperature. I can't strike an arc until my inner pass is that temperature, correct? What am yeah, I missing? No, you're you're no, you're going down the road. Uh, so you preheat. You're right. You got your two pieces of plate. You're gonna weld together. You need to preheat them. So you're heating them up. Uh, you got to be like either your rosebud or your pear burner or high class with like resistance or reduction heating. You're heating it up. Let's say it's a three inch thick plate and it's a three inch thick 836 plate and you're welded up with a, a low hydrogen electrode. So you're you're looking at minimum of temperature of 225 degrees. That's your minimum preheat before you start up an arc. You heat it up to that, and then you start welding. You put the first pass down. You come back, and let's say let's say your grooves, your plate's eight feet long. It takes you a while. So when you come back to it, your inner pass temperature is the temperature it has to be between passes. So if you come back to the end, and wow, this ends at 100 degrees, but where I was welding was like, 400 degrees because it was hot. I was welding on it. So if it's 100 degrees on at the beginning and my minimum interpass and preheat was 225, would I be allowed to weld, Gary? Preheat and interpass temperature is you don't strike an arc unless it's that temperature at a minimum, whether it's the first pass or the 37th pass. You do not strike an arc on that material until it has been heated up or is that temperature at a minimum where you are going to be welding. Like Pete said, if you're at the other end of the 12 foot long weld and it was 400 degrees down there and you come back and it's 100 degrees or 80 degrees here, you can't yeah. strike an arc until you heat that back up to the minimum preheat and inner pass temperature. It's the temperature that you can strike an arc at. Yep. I, I exactly agree with that. The, the, the one thing that's funny uh, or that I found uh, interesting about d11 is there's no maximum temperature listed yeah i think part of that has to do with you'd a lot of this stuff you're welding on bigger material you'd really have to put a lot of heat into it to get it that hot you know what i mean it, there's a lot of exactly no i i agree you it, it would be hard to get it hot enough but so there's a thermal energy you know what i mean no i know i agree uh but if you have a smaller part you may you may build up real quick and what what I have used in the past is is 600 degrees Fahrenheit is my maximum temperature because I feel at below below 600 uh, or 600 and less you're not going to overheat the material it'll be hot but you're not going to over overdo it for most uh, uses for for the materials listed that's kind of been my unwritten rule. Uh, I also see 450, 500 also commonly written in as well. Okay, so that gets us through preheat and interpass temperature. Uh, w- well, one thing we, uh, what about uh, different base metal co- thickness combinations or different, uh, different? If I got a, uh, uh, let's say, be a B to a C, what do I got to heat it to? Or if I have like a quarter inch plate welded up to a two inch thick plate? My interpretation is. I've got to go to the minimum temperature, the highest requirement. If I'm welding a, a B material to a C material, I have to achieve at a minimum the C material. Preheat temperature. Exactly. So if let's say, I mean, it was just making up numbers, it was a, a 225 degree requirement for your thick plate. 
you would also have to apply that to your thin plate. Now, there has been arguments about this. I know uh, where it's, why am I preheating a quarter-inch thick plate to, uh, let's say, 225 degrees? If I'm welding it to a three-inch thick plate, that's 225 degrees. It's not going to draw out that much heat. I think it's a valid argument, unless you really know what you're talking about. I don't think I would make that argument or do that practice. All right, so we done with preheat and interpass? I think so. The the only other one that's, and I've only ran into it a couple times, is when you're dealing with sub-arc, because when you have a bunch of wires or you have multiple wires in it, your arc heating up is so much that you can reduce your uh, preheating. But like I said, this is a, a unique situation that is not common, so I, I don't think we need to delve into that one at all. Okay, so we've got Part G, WPS requirements. So this is where a lot of people get tripped up when they're writing a WPS is they get into the WPS requirements. Um, I'm, I'm running out of um, 2015. So um, general WPS requirements. So this is 3.7 and 2015. So it's going to kick you to, is it still the tables? in there pete uh yeah so what what it will do is uh in, in 2020 it's 5.8 uh but everything is almost the same except one place uh where, where it says yeah table 5.1 uh is where it limits uh everything but other than that it is i imagine it's identical to the 2015 code so a lot of the when we're writing these pre-qualified weld procedures you need to really be knowledgeable about these tables because these tables will trip you up so if you look on we're kind of, pete and i are kind of bouncing back and forth table 3.6 in 2015 is pre-qualified wps requirements and this is going to tell you the maximum electro diameter it's for each process you use for stick sub arc gas metal arc and flux core maximum current uh, maximum root pass thickness, maximum fill pass thickness, maximum single pass fillet weld. You need to address all of these questions in your WPS. You need to go through here and find your process and you just go down there. Okay, I'm going to weld in the flat position for with shielded metal arc welding. My groove can be quarter inch thick or I can only go up to a 5 sixteenths inch fillet weld in the flat position or or not excuse me i can only in the maximum electrode diameter for shielded metal arc welding i can have a 5 16th fillet weld or in the flat position i can use quarter inch or it's you just go through here and just start checking boxes for your process and then the other table is for the pre-qualified wps variables so you go down there and you, okay, change in welding process, change in welding positions. Okay, so if I, I get back to the theory, if I'm writing a WPS, I might not have my overhead WPS and my flat position WPS in the same, um, on the same WPS. I might write them as two separate WPSs because Cor they might. You're right, because the variables could be different. Um and maybe if you're skilled enough to write it you write it all in one but sometimes you it, it's beneficial to write them different and then even if you do use the wrong one it's an easy paper out of it 
okay, we're still using 7018. He did this and this, but we're going to do a, um, our QC department. We're going to do an NCR on this. We're going to slap some hands. Everybody gets a slap on the wrist. Use the right procedures. Get your paperwork together. But you haven't done anything structurally um, wrong. You didn't use the wrong filler metal. You didn't put it in there with you know, a stainless filler metal or something like that. For the most part, you know, as long as your filler metals and your preheats and all most of those things, you know, are most of those variables are covered, you, you can get away with some stuff if you're writing an NCR, a nonconformance report. This is kind of my theory on, you know, WPS is it's, I, I run into customers and, or I guess clients and people I've dealt with and they want to just have one WPS and it's like, just bite the bullet, write a couple, three, four of these, build yourself a library, and go from there. It's You want to swim in the big kid end of the pool, These there's certain things that you're probably going to need to do, and assembling a weld procedure library is one of them. But go ahead, Pete. I know you no, want no, uh, to. <laughs> well, also remember, the, the whole goal of the WPS is as, as a set of instructions for the welders. So... They, it needs to be something that they understand uh, and, and can provide guidance like the one I, I always hated. And, and I'll be honest, in, in probably the beginning part of my career, I probably didn't really think about it. But uh, where we look at, like, let's say maximum current and for a lot of them, it says, let's say for SMAW, within the range of operation recommended by the filler metal manufacturer. Do you know what? They might recommend 100 to 500 amps. If you put that on their WPS, are you wrong? Maybe not. But what good are you giving your guy in the field? I mean, uh, I can see a welder on a bad day uh, that his foreman hacked him off being like, well, let's go set that machine for 500 amps. And he just burns through everything, and the foreman comes over. What's going on? Like, well, I followed your WPS. I'm at 500 amps. Uh, that's not the intent. That's not what they wanted you to do. But you need to bracket it down. I mean, where it it makes actual value for the welder. I mean, some of them may be really good, know exactly how to set up their equipment. Other other guys might not, or gals. I mean, they're maybe due to the industry. Due to this uh, welding machine, they don't have a little tick bark where they've had really good success on written on the dial. I mean, a lot of places operate like that. So we need to make sure that the the piece of paper is worth what it's written on. It could tell the person what they need to do. Well, and just because it says range recommended by the operation of the manufacturer doesn't mean you can't clamp it down and say, exactly. no, this is how many... I, I know other people put this many chocolate chips in their cookies, but I want seven freaking chocolate chips in every cookie. I don't want nine. I don't want 13. I want seven freaking chocolate chips in my cookies. And that's kind of how you have to approach it. And 90% of the people welding aren't going to know that this is in there that, well, and look it up. Oh, I could be running this at 500. No. Engineering judgment says this is where I want it run. You got maybe I'll give you a little slack on that, but this is where we're gonna run with it. So exactly. So what what I have found uh, is what I'll do in a lot of welding procedures. This is also why I like Excel. Uh, is I can put on this is my preferred range of parameters, and it might be a it might be a pretty tight box where you have to be within. 
but then I'll have an allowed range of parameters that's bigger that sometimes when you get in a corner or something, you might need a little more amps or, or uh, where so you need to push the dial a little bit, but you're not outside of your procedure. Uh, so that's that's my spin on how I handle uh, that right there. Even even on qualified procedures, uh, I'll I'll look at doing it the same way. Uh, a a preferred and an allowed a range. And see, philosophically, I don't know if I necessarily. I'm not saying Pete's wrong on that, but I generally go a little wider strike zone than that. I give gotcha. them like enough rope to hang themselves. But, all right, I want you guys operating in here. I don't need seven chocolate chips, but I need between <laughs> six and 11. You know what I mean? Exactly. exactly. And it, depends, it depends on what your workforce is, your guys, who you got for, you know, in a, in a, we've got another episode we're going to talk about. We're going to go off on some rants on setting up a welding program and training welders, and we're going to go into some rabbit holes here. But we're not doing it right now, but. You know, a lot of this stuff ties together. So, you know, that's one of the things you got to look at is, like he said, you know, the the maximum current. If you go down here to that next table um, with the pre-qualified, um, you just go through here. If you're submitting a weld procedure for review, always check these two tables and make sure you have everything addressed. I'm one of these guys. Every time I review a procedure... I go to these and I check your stuff against them. Missing this. Nope, nope, nope. And I'd have little text files where if you sent me a PDF, I'd just put it in there. Fix this, fix this, fix this. And I'd have the relevant code sections to it. So, And you need to realize that not every um, welding process has the same variables, obviously. There's no wire feed speed in shielded metal arc welding. There's no flux type in gas metal arc welding. So you need to go through there and just check all the boxes and make sure that you've addressed everything. Um, you know, like thermal, a change in post-weld heat treat, addition or deletion of. I will gig you on this one if I review your stuff. Even if you're not doing post-weld heat treat, put none. We're not doing it. So that tells the welder there's none. Not applicable could be we're doing it or we're not doing it. So make sure and address everything. Addressing it just means put filling out that box and saying none or yes, we're doing it or we're putting in 14 chocolate chips in each freaking cookie, whatever. <laughs> you need to address it. So thoughts on this and reviewing it. I know you've reviewed a number of procedures in your day, so, Pete. Uh, made yeah, people I mean, cry. I, 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 I basically try to do the same thing. Uh, I, I think I may have a little more leniency on the one that you just picked on, postal heat treat. Uh, postal heat treat is rarely done. Well, I'm going to say rarely. It's not commonly done in the structural world. And I've basically kind of looked at it. If you don't say, like, and you give me preheat or, or postal heat treatment instructions, I'm assuming you're not postal heat treating. Uh, Maybe that's exactly right, but I've kind of looked at it from that standpoint. But otherwise, Gary, you're, you're right. I basically go through and do you have the essential variables, essential and non-essential variables checked off for your uh, for your applicable process. And that's also what goes back to what we were earlier saying is mixing in a whole bunch of stuff on the one WPS leads you to more chances of failure 
or a forgetting something uh, or or not switching uh, between uh, like electrode positive or electrode negative, depending on you still your. Are. Yes. All Hello? right. Yep. You still there? I'm here. I can hear you fine. All right. You kind of cut out for a minute, but all right. Uh, where did I, where'd cut, I cut? Where did I cut out at? Um, I think right before you went into, um, you were talking about electrode positive, electrode negative, okay. kind of. All right. I, that all that got cut out, or <clears throat> or right after it. Right, kind of in there. So if you want to digress, then I'll kind of cobble it together. Check, check, check. Uh, we're, we Go have ahead. Multiple, multiple WPS or multiple processes on one WPS. You can run into more problems of where you have addressed variables for one, but maybe not the other. Um, yeah. Otherwise, Gary, I, I completely go, agree with you. Going through all these, making sure you have them down, uh, is is how I review a welding procedure. Uh, plus, with the gut check factor of, hey, does this make sense? Uh, right. And well, part of it's where you know everybody learns the. I guess I I cut my teeth and I learned the religion of welding out at the Hanford Nuclear Site. That's kind of, and I mean, those guys would go through everything with a fine tooth comb. And I mean, it was just a brutal slog on everything. You got guys out there that have been doing things for 30 years and it is verbatim compliance. So that's why I may be a little more zealous on things. But generally, if I go through somebody's weld procedure, and I'd tell this when I was working in the Midwest, I'd tell guys, if I go through your WPS and you, you fix everything on it, there's nobody else going to mess with you later on. I'm, it'll be watertight if you fix everything that I tell you to fix. So, I mean, it's kind of a double-edged sword, but, you know, take it as a learning experience. It, exactly. I, I agree. Uh, everyone both writes and reviews welding procedures from a little different angle. Uh, so... Uh, as as you alluded to earlier, uh, where you if you know the reviewer, um, you know what their pet peeves are. Um, there are some people like to see lots of notes on it that may correlate to the joint detail, while other ones are, hey, just call it to joint detail and you're good to go. My uh, I'll be honest, my pet peeve is, will it work for the guy on the shop floor? That's that's my I guess the way I look at it is the, is it understandable where like let's say base metals if uh, uh, if someone puts down hey uh, group one well uh, 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 let's see uh, would be yeah group one materials uh, or or uh, class one materials do they have a D11 code book out there to know what a class uh, or that group of materials is that uh like a group one or a group two um that's kind of one of my pet peeves is rarely is, is a code book ever on the shop floor well and my my other one is if you write a weld procedure and you put a36 to a36 that's it you can weld that is a36 it the a36. a36 well or we were welding a group one material Nope, you should have said group one to group one. There's ways to word this, but if you say specific material to specific material, that's the end of it. You can weld that with that procedure. 
So there's ways to write that. Um, getting back to what you said, Pete, too, about um, like reviewing, writing and reviewing procedures. A lot of times you'll have intermediaries, you know, sales or um, document control submitting your procedure to the client, and then there's a client person getting it, or to the yeah to the client, and then them getting it to their welding guy. A lot of times when I'm doing these, I just tell the intermediaries, well, they kicked their welding guy kicked us back, and it's all marked up, and I'm like, just get me that guy's number, just get me the guy's number, and I'll call him up and be like, all right, what is it you want? This is this is who I am. I kind of you know give them a preface of who I am. All right, I worked at Hanford, blah blah blah. I'm a welding engineer. Kind of you know, this is, give them my short resume. What do you want on this WPS? What's the hang up? And you, a lot of times they'll tell you, and I'll be like, all right, I fixed it. Um, send it to them, and they'll tell you, oh yeah, that's great. I, I there's a lot of this back channel stuff that general, and we're kind of getting off into the weeds here, but. Um, this back channel kind of stuff works good. Or let's say I've worked with Pete before. I haven't, we haven't crossed paths in the professional world since as far as me reviewing his or vice versa. But if he sees that I'm the reviewer, he's going to call me up and say, Gary, what do I need? What do I need to get this through? What's your pet peeves? Or I got a pretty good idea. This is what I'm looking at. What do we got to do? So exactly. It's, it's all, it it is, it's hard to build a rapport when you either cannot, you've either never met the person or it's pure communication through paper. Uh, I feel uh, the the humanity is lost when it's just uh, uh, a paper conversation uh, where you may not understand uh, the the person may know or think some other, other uh, specification or something uh, applies when it doesn't. And it's, oh, now I understand your point of view. Uh, now I understand why you wrote it like this. Let's try to make it make it right or uh, address whatever the, the missing details are. Uh, I, I agree. Always try to get a hold of whoever is the ultimate approver and talk to them. And when they know you're a living, breathing person, uh, things seem to go a lot easier. No, and it, like you say, if you, you know, I, I had a guy tell me, a project manager, he's like, the hell is it with you welding guys? He's like, every time, if you haven't worked with the guy, every time with you guys, it's a goddamn fight. You guys have a fight. And then once you guys figure out, oh, the other guy knows what he's doing, he kind of has a clue. Then you can kind of figure it out and work together. And then, But until you guys have your fight and figure out who knows what, the project doesn't go anywhere as far as welding welding um wpss and pqrs so that's kind of the way i you know and not that you have to have a fight but i was dealing with a guy from ingles shipyard and he rejected a bunch of our stuff and i was like give me the guy's phone number this was when i was working up out of seattle i was like give me the guy's phone number i call him up nicest guy ever he's like yeah fix this 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 and this and you're done and i'm like all right i'm going to change the wps number i'm going to give you a I'm going to modify this. This is going to be just for your job. I'm going to send it down there. We kind of exchanged emails, two emails back and forth. We talked to each other. All right, no problem. But we were going through sales and then his purchasing and they were getting involved and it was just this whole email string and it's just like, just let me talk to that guy. Just we'll hash this out. So 
All right, let's 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 reel it back in. We'll hit post weld heat treatment and call it a day. What do you think? All right, Pete? that that sounds great. All right, post weld heat treatment. Uh, like I said, is not common uh, in D11. Uh, it is allowed. Uh, uh, the 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 one of the things is it's pre-qualified, but it has to be approved by the engineer. So there's there's a little bit of a caveat. It's pre-qualified, assuming you follow these uh, five steps here, uh, but it has to be pre-approved by by like I said by the engineer. Uh, there's some simple things on here. Base metal strength can't be over 50 KSI for the yield. Uh, it can't be a, a quenched tempered material uh, or Q&T or thermomechanical processing, which there's actually, we got to be careful about that. There's a lot of plate out there that's now made by the PMPC process. And what I would look at is the actual MTR of the material that you want to use. Because in an ASTM, it may give you, oh, it could be done by this, this, and this. Well, you need to look at the MTR for what your exact material was done. Uh, there's no CVN requirements. Uh, you have to, the, the filler metal has to have showed uh, adequate uh, strength from the uh, A5 uh, filler metal spec. And it then also throws you, uh, in the 2020 version, it throws you uh, to uh, 7.8 for some other requirements uh, for that you have to do the postal heat treat in. Uh, I think in all of my years for doing D11 work, the only time I can remember it coming up was, and it was actually, the welding procedure was qualified, but it's still D11 postal heat treat is it was a massive bascule bridge and it was the gear the rack gear that goes on the bottom uh it was like 12 inches thick uh, it was welded to a base plate that was so it's like a 12 inch thick plate that's like five feet tall uh welded to a base plate that was six inches thick and let's say two feet wide i don't know eight feet long or whatever it was welded and post-weld heat treated. Not for the weld, it was to stress relief the base material so it didn't move during machining. Uh, that is one, I think, the only time I can really think of as post-weld heat treating on structural steel that I've dealt with, Gary. I've never I've never come across it. Um, I, you know, you run across post-weld heat treatment in power plants and um, boilers and hersigs and castings and a, a number of other situations yeah oil and gas is real big on yeah 4130 goes all over the place uh that's all post well heat treated but structural steel there's just not the need for it no it's pretty much just plug and play material the mechanical properties are going to be what they are so so correct i guess wrapping this up um you know a, a couple of keys is there's not a lot of verbiage in here there's like three or four pages on pre-qualified, you know. Correct. But the tables are where you need to understand the tables and the three or four, um, the three or four paragraphs in here that are 
they're, are very powerful, and they will kick you out of here and send you into the qualification zone. Exactly. Uh, like your, your, your cookie chip uh, correlation. I mean, if, if it, you have to have exactly these cookies chips to fall within pre-qualified or it does, it kicks you out. And I would say knowing table 5.1 uh, is that these are, these numbers are all out of 2020 is 5.1, uh, 5, 2, uh, your 5, 3 table, uh, and 5.4 is just a magic filler medals for the different, uh, um, Base metal groups, though those are going to be uh, critical for so your, for your table with your base metals, your preheats, your filler metals, shielding gases, understanding weld processes. You need to. These are all things that will trip you up in the pre-qualification. So I think we did a pretty thorough rehashing of this. We might have to break this one into two. But um, anything you need to say in wrapping it up, Pete? Um. The, there was one table that, uh, just so folks know about it, uh, in 2015, it's table 5.5. Five. I'm assuming it was 3.5 in the old, in the, in the 2015 code. Uh, and this is minimum pre-qualified uh, groove size for your material. Uh, so basically, it gives you a range of base metal thickness and then the minimum weld size that goes along with it. And basically... The thicker the material, the bigger the minimum weld size. Uh, so that's just one to kind of know about its existence. Uh, so it doesn't uh, come back and, uh, and bite you on something. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Hopefully we haven't put too many people to sleep. Or if that was your intention, hopefully you got a sound sleep while this exactly. was uh, chasing off your insomnia while we delved into the pre-qualified WPS. Okay, next time we're going to dig into qualification. We'll start down that rabbit hole, see if we run into Alice or the Mad Hatter or see where we go on that one. So, all right, thanks a lot, Pete. We'll all right, talk thank to you, you later. Take all care. Right. Thanks for listening. Hope this podcast was worth listening to. We're going to have more content coming out. Also, if you want to shoot me an email, gpacex at gmail.com. Give me some ideas or maybe there's some questions that you'd like me and Pete or me and Joel to answer in regards to welding, welding codes, filler material, or any other material joining question that you might think we have a shot in hell of answering. Anyways, thanks for listening. Take care. Pace out. If you like these podcasts, stop by my website, texasweldingengineering.com, and go to the donation page. Use PayPal, throw me a dollar or two so that the next time we hit the local Dairy Queen, we can get a large chocolate chip cookie dough blizzard. Also, if you're looking for CWI training at a reasonable price, check out train-eng.com. Also, if you're not familiar with my YouTube channel, there's a bunch of YouTube videos on there. If you just do a Google search under Gary Pace Welding ASME or AWS, D1.1, there's a bunch of videos on there. Check those out, too, if you're interested.